is Mishe Limo Manley Agus Shohe the Ireland podcast. Who are you and what do you do? Is this your uh, this your chat up? <laughs> it's uh, big questions there, Fender. Um, let me see. Who am I? I'm. Uh, I go by the name Rory McKiernan, and uh, what do I do? I do what I can, how I can, and as best I can. Uh, a number of different things, but I, I don't. I don't suppose particularly have a job title or at least one of them. Uh, I have a number of things that I do. I've recently trained as a counsellor. Um, I've been a campaigner. I've been a charity founder and a CEO and all manner of things. But I try not to overly identify with what I do. That puts you in a pigeonhole handy enough then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your pigeonholes don't work so well. <laughs> How do you earn money? Well, that's a bloody <laughs> that's a great question. Um, the, to be honest with you, I don't earn any money at the moment. Um, You're in the dole. No, I'm not in the dole. I'm just not earning any money. Um, You're hemorrhaging through your savings. Um, yeah, yeah, I am actually. Yeah, uh, my limited savings, um, and that's because of where I'm just at at a little juncture at the moment. Uh, I've just come back from Australia, a year there, and. I'm with my wife um, exploring the possibility of going back there. And so I'm very reticent about what I invest my time and labour into at the moment because I, whatever I do, I like to do a good job. Um, so a few wee projects I'm t- tipping away at. It. Um, I'm not idle, put it that way. But um, in terms of money, I've, uh, maybe the last 25 years, I have earned a living in what's generally called the non-profit sector or charity sector. Of course, it involves charity and non-profit, but people make a wage out of that. And I have certainly managed to pull a living out of it. And uh, yeah, I don't own any yachts or anything like that. But, you know, and then I've generally been self-employed in that area in the last number of years. And uh, last year, most of my earnings, I mean, I didn't expect to get into earnings straight away, but... Uh, I was hired as a campaign strategist and a consultant on gambling reform in Australia. I also did some work in counselling and, uh, yeah, from time to time I get paid to do public speaking at conferences and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I'll publish my full bank accounts on <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> for, for people me, can I, critique I, and discuss. I feel I feel a bit crude having asked that. However, whenever... Ah, so, people, people are want to know these things. They I, do. I, because I whenever really, they, especially whenever I hear this job title that goes on like a, like a, like a shopping list, yeah. I just think, how do you earn a living? You know, but um, yeah, they answered that. So that's good enough. Yeah. I mean, some people might get offended with that sort of, you know... But you're only telling me, so it doesn't matter. Oh, that's right. And we're only publishing it on the internet. Um, yeah, I, I, do, I don't really have, you know... I don't have any concerns about uh, discussing these things. Good. You know, um, people have their own personal boundaries around those matters and, and everyone should adhere to their own boundaries. Mm-hmm. So, you know... You're the author of a best-selling book... Yeah. Is it actually a best-selling book or best-selling book in some area, some category, some tight defined category? Uh, <laughs> you sound sceptical. <laughs> I am. Because it's the way it was written on your website. It was like best-selling book and then it had this almost like a appendage stuck to it. Well, you're, 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 you're not unlike me in that I, I, I do sort of re-look at things because there's a lot of 
kind of hype and blast. is it a best-selling book or not <laughs> uh it was number one best-selling book in the non-fiction national charts in one week in ireland well, when it came out that's brilliant nationally yeah because on the web on your website yeah. it says something like irish times or something best-seller. irish times number one bestseller yeah i mean Aye. to be honest that maybe is because i was living abroad and uh, I can't say number one in every country and there's often, particularly in the US context, they understand things in terms of New York Times number one bestseller. And okay. So in Ireland, yeah, the yeah. Irish Times is the main but not the only source of publishing the weekly charts. But we could get into the minute of worry. all that. I've, I've, yeah, we've yeah. done it. So tell yeah. us about the book, Hitching for Hope. Yeah. It's class. So it's... it's it, I haven't read it yet, but I know uh, the story <laughs> all about it. But you're endorsing it. <laughs> I have endorsed it because... I love the process of how yeah. it was written. So talk about that. Yeah, okay. So um, go back maybe 10 years and I was at, uh, I go through these juncture phases every number of years and that was another juncture where um, I had founded a, a national charity, Youth Empowerment and Mental Health Organization. And I'd ran that for a number of years and built it up and it was doing very, very well. Uh, but I became quite burnt out in the process and at the end of that I decided to jump ship into the unknown and as part of that I was trying to figure out who am I and what do I do those questions that you just asked me and at the same time Ireland was also asking itself the question who am I and what are we at in the context of a, a massive global recession but particularly the bankruptcy of the country and a lot of social economic and political turmoil so a lot of gloom and in that existential context, I came up with the idea of doing a kind of a project where I'd go around the country, talking to people, listening to people, uh, exploring a kind of a pilgrimage of sorts. And it sort of grew legs and became this idea of a listening project. And then I ended up calling it, well, firstly, I was going to drive. And then I realized it cost a hell of a lot of money to in just petrol alone. So I, I had hitchhiked when I was young, as many Irish people had done once upon a time yeah yourself included and uh, I decided to hitchhike and it became known as Hitching for Hope and it became a bit of a thing people followed it online and it was a genuine uh, unplanned um, didn't know where I was going to go didn't know who I was going to talk to didn't know where I was going to stay every night went with no money and no agenda other than to listen and reflect and in the years subsequent to that, people had suggested numerous times that I should have and could have documented it and put it into a book. And that was never a plan. And I never aspired to write a book. But something in me sort of knew they were right. And there was a lot had transpired in a very short trip. And so I set about writing the book, which took me a very, 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 very long time. And I blood, sweat and tears um, and I learned a lot in that process. The book was its own project and birthed at a very interesting time, um, March 2020, which is otherwise known as the start of the global pandemic and came out in the very first week of the lockdown in Ireland, which was very curious timing to, for a book about hope. So you know what the sort of COVID is March, I know it is Mm. December. Well, I know it too, because as you know, my, my brother was in China and we started to hear about this virus for a few months before it hit here. Now it did sort of, uh, it was kicking off towards the end of January, and t but it was really March was, yeah. you're right, it wasn't the start of the pandemic, it was the start of the lockdowns here. Yeah. Mm. I should say, full transparency, 
I don't know you as this best-selling author. I know you as the big brother of my lovely, beautiful friend, Mr. Sean McKiernan. Yeah. Who uh, I was colleague with in China for a number of years. And I'm only colleague with him because he asked me for a job. So if you look at that production there, Queen Charlie Chaplin, The Life of Charlie Chaplin, set to the music of Queen. That's 400 people. I staged that in China. It nearly killed me. And he phoned me during that process. And I said, get your ass down here. I've got a job for you. And I said to the principal, we've got somebody else doing this, half of my work because I was teaching everybody in the school. Yeah. Anyway, he was very proud that your book arrived for him in China. I was saying, look at this here, you know, my brother's done this here. So big shout out to you, Mr. Sean Oak, if you're, he never listens to these podcasts. Hello, Sean Oak. Are you listening? Are you out there? Yeah. Come in, <laughs> talk to us. He, he, I think he, I think he, he said a few times that you and I are very similar. Well, I mean, I've only just met you in person and um, you strike me as, uh, you know, you're your own man, let's say, and you're doing things your own way and um, you don't, I would, wouldn't know where to put you or categorize you Good. at the moment. And some people struggle with that kind of idea because they can't make sense of it. Um, but I personally, I suppose I maybe align with that sensibility, but also a lot of my friends and peers are probably in the arts and I particularly cherish artists um, because they're making movies, they're making books, they're making visual art, um, they're rethinking society, reflecting on society. They're often stepping back out of the mainstream to understand who we are and where we are and why we're here even. And there isn't really a culture on earth ever that has existed that didn't have art or didn't need art. And uh, often the material um, view of the world doesn't always value art, but yet needs it. It's like an oxygen, you know. Um, so therefore, I believe that we need to celebrate artists as well. Not any more than nurses for, for that, you know, but... Um, yeah, I don't know what the question was. But no, there was. No, no, we're we're was talking, there a question? We were talking generally about uh, Sean Og and oh, the, oh, he tra- said he said. No, no, that, yeah, we're similar. similar. Yeah, we're yeah. similar. That's what he said. Yeah. So the thing is, Sean Og, and I've said this to your mother. Sean Og is one, and I've met. I've met. Well, many, he's an artist too. You know? I've met many musicians in my life. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm, I'm playing music for forty years. Yeah, um, around that time, and I've shook a lot of hands. And your brother is one of the best musicians I've ever shook the hands of. And I, t- I told that to your mother because um, it's for real. He mm. is a bona fide, excellent bluegrass guitarist and singer and all the rest. He's a drummer now. He's just annoying that way. You know, he can just mm. sort of pick up anything and be excellent at it. We're going to get him on the podcast and we'll get him to play songs. And then we get the, the studio audience to vote on that. Well, he, I don't know if he was here, what he would say about that, but I have a suspicion that he might also add in there that he can't just pick up anything and be good at it because he, he has said in the past the importance of investing in your craft 
and the discipline and all that goes with that. And I think that's true for so many people, including friends of mine that have been athletes at a very high level mm. um, at a successful level. They weren't. Yeah, it's you're back into this nature nurture debate as to are people born with a Madonna style gift, but it's the whole 10,000 hours thing as well, where are they investing in their gift to make it, you know, bring it out into the world. So I'm laughing because I'm remembering St. Patrick's Day 2021, it must be in around that time, and we were stuck in the heart of lockdown and we couldn't get home. And we were playing some tunes in uh, the school auditorium. It just is a background for a meal going on, you know, and... Uh, these people said to us as we were carrying our equipment down the, down the stairs, they said to us, you know, oh, these are great. And Sean Oge says to him, it's a gift. <laughs> and he looked at me, you know, with that knowing look, as if to say, is it heck a gift? You know, it's, it is, as you say, it's a 10,000 hours, you know? Yeah, it is. And it's 100,000 hours in that case or more, but... Yeah, I, I also do believe that people do are born with different gifts as well within that. I don't know where that thread begins and ends, but I, you know, I do feel that I was reading about a, a famous painter this morning and she started her painting at like 12 years old. And I don't know, I don't know. It just got me thinking about, you know, yeah, I'm sure you see it with your own kids and that, you know, that people have orientations and inclinations yeah. and and I suppose I think Yeats or someone came up with this this idea of education about it not being about filling the pail but rather sort of in, invoking what's already in there like to, that if education can do anything of course you know you can share knowledge and and instill kind of uh information at one level but what is inside that human being, what's inside that child that has not come out as yet. And it could be a gift for sport, music, yeah. architecture, pharmacy, medicine, whatever. And I suppose I would have a passion that in this short lives that we have, that everybody gets to at least taste a little bit of their own gift. Um, because otherwise, you know, what are we at, really? I think it's my job as a parent to open up as many doors to my children as possible and show them the room and try and get them to experience the room in some way. Yeah. And then it's up to them if they want to go into the room or not, you know. Mm. Let's keep an eye on the time. So, 4.56, you want to be at, we'll wrap up in, uh, what time is it? We'll wrap up. We're grand. In, aye, but we'll wrap up in 45. Cool. Right? Yeah. 45. Let me set my timer here. So what, what Sean Oge is also, he, this, is a, this is the annoying thing about him, he's intelligent, right? He, he's got everything except looks, which is good, you know. Now he's got looks too. I'm joking, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but what I mean is, he's a musician and he's a sports person. He was into football in a big way. Yeah. In a big way. Like he played for his club and then he played for the minors. And this is something that the people won't recognise is that he he was playing for the club and then he'd go to play the minors or vice versa and they'd have to do you know lengths of of uh, running all over again mm. and he had to pack one of them in I think he packed in the club and then everybody started giving him abuse because ah oh, you're you're not trying you know you're you, it's too hard for you whatever it was too hard for him 
you know, I think there should be some form of liaison between clubs and county. Uh, so yeah, what, mean, what I'm warming up yeah. to is, are you a footballer? No, no, I'm not multi... I'm, I, I, well, I don't know if I'm multi-talented or not. I definitely don't have as many dominant skills as that, um, yeah. at least in that way. But I do have plenty of friends that, yeah, they would, you know... Is it polyglot? Is that the word for, you know, this kind of like multiple... Languages. N- not polyglot, polymath. No, poly, it's it's where, you know, you're just kind of expert at a number of fields. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I would have friends that, you know, one of them recently built his own house and and, yeah, and he, he's an amazing... You know, actually, two mates have built houses and they're, they're exceptional at two or three other fields. I, I, I don't... But I don't, arguably, I would say, Rory... You are more important. You remind me of my brother. More important than what? You, you know, because you are... So my brother is into green energy, yeah. right? And he he's changing the world. Yeah. You know, he is turning people less dependent on, on fuel yeah, and yeah. more into green energy. Yeah. And I say to him, you're a rock star. You literally, literally are a rock star. Um, you know, the rocks and all the rest. But anyway, I'd say you're the same in that you are an advocate for change, hope in other areas. That's more tangible than what we do. What we do is decorate time. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if any of these things are any more important than well, you know. Yeah, Um, I I hear your point. But what I'm saying is it's not as important to be great at everything than to do one thing really well. Yeah, yeah, certainly you can. You can slice and dice that any number of ways. And, you know, I don't know if it's going to bring us anywhere useful, like, because at the end of the day, it gets into a game of comparison as to who yeah. what, who might be better than another person. And at the end of the day, like, we're all just fundamentally different. And good by what metrics are we any better than Let's anyone else? Let's talk about gambling. Gambling? Oh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> uh, what do you want to know about gambling? I'm, 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 I'm really afraid of it. Good. I'm really, really, I'll tell you why. Good. I have an aunt, or I had an aunt, right? Yeah. She's passed on. And she told me very, very wisely yeah. that addiction, your body will tell you whenever you've had enough. Well, it's alcohol, food, mm. sex, whatever that addiction is, not for gambling. Mm. And that has stuck with me for all these decades. Tell me about gambling. Well, I suppose I... Yeah, I've like been interested in public health for a long time now, and um, particularly uh, mental health, also sexual health, uh, in the in the way that how does society look at a particular health issue? But one of the ones I zoned in on was alcohol, and anyone that's ever lived in Ireland or experienced Ireland knows that we're synonymous with alcohol, and and we can sort of make jokes about that and celebrate it and have the crack and da 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 da. But underneath all that is a travesty of addiction and broken families and hurt and abuse and violence and imprisonment and A&E wards and all of that that is going on as we speak right now. And it's alcohol is always going to be with us. It's not like let's ban alcohol outright. But within that are industries and agendas and companies that are pushing the alcohol. Uh, My main beef would be on younger people. And so, as you know, having lived in different places, it's not every society that is so alcohol soaked. And young people can have 
an opportunity to better develop themselves outside of the haze of alcohol. Um, and if they so wish to engage in alcohol, well and good. But it's the kind of pushing style, pushing and pimping of any substance that I really sort of have a big issue with. But it's also then at the other level, the industry will say, well, it's personal responsibility and personal choice. And it's all the same debate with the gambling industry. I've seen it here where they've really, you see it everywhere. They've captured the sports, professional sports arenas everywhere insofar as they've even renamed sporting arenas to the name of the gambling company. And it's now on jerseys. It's on, it's, it's everywhere. And so you often now hear often men, but not exclusively people talking about sport and the next sentence are the odds and it's into a betting style. And for many or most people that might not be an issue, but for an increasing amount of people, that means going and hiding in the bathroom and gambling away your potential and your family's food and mortgage money and so on and so forth. And it really kind of hit home for me when I moved to Australia and seeing one of the most gambling afflicted countries in the world has been for a very, very long time. And a lot of it really comes down to political capture that the industry own the political parties, the two main ones anyway, in so far as the lobbyists and donation access. So they have uh, what are called pokey machines, pretty fruit machines. Uh, they're in almost every pub, particularly in New South Wales. And you basically have people sort of pissing away their lives in these places. And it's just human misery and tragedy. And the main tragedy is that it's, it's preventable. It doesn't need to be that way. Um, so I just, I suppose I've always had a big issue with abuse of power. And, you know, again, the industry will point back, well, everybody has equal choice and it's up to them what they do with their own money, hard earned and so on. But, you know, any sort of decent society will have checks and balances as well. And if we have checks and balances, then we won't have dominant industries working behind the scenes with politicians, policymakers to undermine public health, which is ultimately the public good. Because if people are engaged in violence or, uh, let's say, uh, losing the potential of their home, their family, their workplace, their own health, their own sanity, uh, then it's going to affect society at a number of levels, including economically. So there's all this money and all this potential being hoovered up into these machines and also now into our phones and our apps and all the various things. So I don't know, it's a tricky one because with alcohol and gambling, people sort of get an aversion to here we go with pious moral preaching, telling us what to do, big brother, nanny state. And people don't like necessarily having, you know... Seatbelts! Yeah, exactly, exactly, seatbelts. There was a massive campaign against seatbelts when they were first proposed. And, uh, you know... I just get millions, exasperated. Hundreds of with, millions of lives saved. I get exasperated whenever I hear, you know, people talk about, oh, nanny state and all that crap. Seatbelts, you know? That was... There was a huge resistance to whatever that was, they were brought in. I, like, I mean, it's at every level. Like, there's aspects of, like, cancer health. Like, the, the, mm. the toxins and the, the chemicals that would... There's a plenty in our food and water as it is, but what would be if there wasn't public health campaigning? And, mm. you know, I know people have problems with government and politicians at a number of levels, but, you know, it's also up to us as citizens to influence the agenda. And I don't believe all politicians are bad or all policymakers are bad or anything like that. That's a kind of a 
a very simplistic reductive view of life it's way more complex than that and i do believe there are people that are dedicated public servants to the public good and we benefit from that and our families benefit from that and most of us grew up in a country with for instance free at least primary and secondary education or you know some manner of public health care and that was all hard won and hard fought for against vested interests but those there'd always be this battle against the public good and the private good and mm. i suppose i would have a orientation to always be in the defense of the public good profit versus um public perception and so on uh yeah well, i suppose there's you know there's a party people before profit but you know whatever about their politics or or their their the particular party i you know it's yeah i'd rather have you know, sort of 10 people in, have 10 homes and 10 good lives than one person, you know, having the 10 homes and renting them out to the 10 people. So I suppose the common good might be another way of looking at it. Sorry, I'm just turning on the lights. There. No worries. That was pretty impressive there. Were you impressed? Yeah. So tell me about the work that you're doing around gambling in Australia then. Um, so I actually hired to work on an election, um, the New South Wales election. And uh, I haven't really spoken about it publicly. Because, don't talk about it if you don't want to. No, I'll, I'll say a little bit. Um, uh, it, yeah, it's a little bit tricky because uh, the Labour Party uh, were trying to unseat the Liberal Party in... The, the Labour Party in Australia are generally seen as orient slightly to the left and the Liberals are quite to the right and that's sort of the, now they're both sort of anyway it's the whole usually, yeah, usually to the right anyway yeah <laughs> you could say they're all to the right but but um labor are actually terrible worse particularly new south wales were worse than the liberal party it was like a role reversal problem in new south wales and i think the population there is about seven million so more than almost the island of ireland or or thereabouts um, and I was working on the election, um, particularly to sort of try and um, put gambling on the agenda with a number of advocates, adv activists and NGOs, and also working with a whistleblower who had worked uh, for the gambling industry. And basically, we succeeded at one level where we made it into kind of a top five issue, top three even. Uh, but we didn't win the the immediate commitment to reform. But you know, social changes like that and campaigns like that, you're just always trying to move the, the dial a little bit. And sometimes the change takes months, sometimes it takes years, sometimes it takes decades. Sometimes your little pebbles are just the little ripples that will in time develop into a wave, but it requires a lot of people to be putting other pebbles in there. So, you know, um, that's, it was, I guess you call it like policy advocacy uh, work that I was doing and, and just getting it into the media, making some noise, applying the pressure. Uh, and I was very much a behind the scenes guy. Sometimes I'm a bit more out front, but uh, the reason I hadn't talked about it is that I was just behind the scenes and it, it didn't really matter that my name was in the mix. And in fact, I felt it would maybe be a disservice to people to say, who's this Irish guy floating around interfering in Australian politics? You're not from around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all of that. So um, talk... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I suppose there's another add-in to that is that um, um, the company behind Paddy Power called Flutter are one of the dominant players in the Australian uh, 
betting industry. Uh, so there's a direct Irish involvement there. So, mm. you know, anyway. So you said there that you may be going back. Does that mean you might be staying here? Yeah, it's it's a it's a little bit of a complicated. Okay, <laughs> we'll not go there. I uh, know there's a few factors. We're just yeah, bit 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 of a deliberation going on. Grand. Yeah. Talk to me about relocating. You know, as as in, what did you go through whenever you moved to Australia? Because how many people did you know there? Um, a handful. Like you know, like I don't know. Five or ten, like. And how how was it? And what challenges did you face? And how did you overcome them? Um, somebody used the word when I first arrived, and I was talking to him, a friend of mine called Reverend Tim Costello, um, about disorientation. That it's disorientating moving to a new place, and and it is a great word, um, because orientation implies a sort of a grounded rootedness. You know your parameters. Disorientated, it could at an extreme level, you haven't a clue what's going on. You know. Um, and so, yeah, I did feel that. And I think more so being in my 40s, uh, I think I've been lived abroad a little bit when I was in my 20s, more so. And you're just more having the crack. You're out with people. There's more socializing going on. Maybe it would be a bit easier. Um, but then we moved to another more rural, regional place um, up near the Queensland border. And that was a bit more isolated. And yeah, like in both instances, you don't have your friends, you don't have your family, you don't have people to connect with at a deep cultural level. On the other hand, you know, it's white. It's, well, it's it's mostly white. It's English speaking. You, you could say it's part of like, there are many similarities to Ireland. Um, I mean, when we talk about the white and the racial aspect, that's a whole other conversation. But it does uh, relate to other work that I've been doing for the last couple of years for uh, a couple of days a week, I was working with a national refugee and migrant rights organisation in Ireland, including working with them from Australia. And so ever since I was a kid, and part of this to do is to do with my family having moved abroad for a year when I was a kid. That's right. Yeah. So um, I've always been interested in emigration and migration and what that means at a psychological level, at a cultural level. But it's, it's also, you know, a phenomenon that's been with us since the beginning of time. Like, we none of us would be anywhere if it wasn't for migration. Mm, <laughs> it's mm. it's how humanity has developed. Mm. And yet here we are with people roaring and shouting, uh, making it the, the issue of our time in a sense that, you know, and, and, and turning it into like, you know, the bottom line is I feel like it's been exploited in this phenomenon that's now known as the culture wars. And it's been used uh, to build political muscle and force by uh, bad actors, essentially. And they're the same bad actors that influenced the 1930s and spelled bad things in Germany, Italy, and went on then in Franco in Spain and, and Portugal, Argentina, Chile. Everywhere else there's been right-wing dictators, uh, or, or you could see left-wing dictators for that matter. But um, in this context, like demonising minorities in any sense whether it be you know by race uh, religion and and also sexual orientation and you know ireland to some extent has come a long way particularly uh, around lgbt rights but now less so on the t in the lgbt because we're seeing a, a massive 
um, stoking of, you know, trans as an issue. And for me, like there, there might be conversations to be had around all of that, but it's always a conversation between people that, and it never involves the, the population you're talking about. Mm. Um, is this kind of thing that's known as othering and it's, it's very, very dangerous. And I think what we really should be talking about is, you know, the two dominant issues as I see them are the, the, the ecology around us that, that supplies the food we eat that provides the shelter, the materials for the shelter above our heads uh, and keeps us alive on a daily basis comes from the ecosystem of this earth that we're on. And through the way we've developed, particularly in the last 40, if not 100 years, is now compromising our very existence. Uh, And if we don't want to sort of uh, look at that at the deep existential level, we can look at it at the economic level and say, well, it's going to cause a massive impact on our economies and our, our survival in terms of floods and fires. And I saw that in Australia. You see it in Canada, America, Europe, everywhere. It's undeniable at this point. Um, uh, that's issue number one. Issue number two is economic um, equality is and inequality is that if people feel that they have a fair go and enough of a go to have food, shelter, uh get their car repaired, go to the dentist and have a holiday, which is used to be known as the social contract and social mobility, that you would put in a good effort into your week, earn, work hard, earn hard, and you could start to progress. And over time now in the last number of years, there's been this kind of clawing back of that ability. And there's a resentment growing up now that there's a kind of them and us, the, the 1% and the 99% and so on. Uh, but I feel like what's happening is rather than talking about those two issues, we're talking about migrants and trans people and it's become a sort of a decoy uh, thing. And if there are conversations to be had around trans rights and and migration, well, then let's have them in a sort of intelligent, um, coherent space that doesn't involve burning down refugee centres and, yeah. you know, bullying and abusing people to the point of suicide. So unfortunately, I'm, you know, obviously you can hear I'm quite animated about that at the moment. And uh, I've just driven by a number of tricolours, um, Irish flags. Uh, you know, this is, you, you know, you're involved with the Ireland podcast and the Irish flag for the most part is a flag of peace. It's the green and the white. That's where you're from. Yeah, well, well, it, it was meant to be a flag of peace yeah. where the white was peace between the orange and the green. And now... When I see it and it, how it has been used in recent weeks, including the other day at a mass protest in Dublin, it is now being used as a flag of division and hatred and demonization. And uh, it makes me very sad. So, Well, I, I mean, I grew up in Northern Ireland and the flag was not seen as uh, yeah. you know, a peace yeah, emblem yeah, up yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. John Hume's father famously said to John, you cannot eat a flag. Yeah, well, well, that goes back to some of my kind of comment around people at a fundamental level want food and shelter and want to be looked mm. after, and especially migrants. That's why people migrate, you know, and, and, you know, obviously there's persecution and war and famine involved. There's multiple levels of migration. Um, but, you know, we're all sort of trying to get by as best we can and make meaning all of us, mm. and especially migrants who are some of the most vulnerable groups in the world because they have at that level this disorientation. And particularly if you don't have the same language or culture 
our family group, our social connections, you're so far behind at so many levels, which is why traditionally migrants work longer and work harder and are more innovative and open shops and, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, there's, there's, there's stereotypes of migrants too, if like I've just used one opening shops. So it's a very complicated uh, <laughs> conversation, but, but at the other level, it's not a complicated at all. Migrants can also be performing arts teachers in China. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, and and also often known as expats and not migrants, which <laughs> oh, is another yeah. dynamic, you know. Yeah, I think as an economic migrant. No, I don't yeah. know why. And, and look, Irish people are some of the most prolific migrants that ever existed and immigrants. That Do you know why I moved to whole... China? Go on. I wanted my children to learn Chinese. Yeah. Well, well, that's it. Like, like there, you know, it's it's not as maybe as binary as I was putting it. That is, yeah. it's not all economics and war. There, there are many cultural factors, mm. and many people left Ireland because they, they. Uh, I remember going to San Francisco. I went, spent two summers in America. One in, when I was young, one in Boston, and it felt more like economic migrants. And then in San Francisco, the young Irish I was meeting there felt like they were more cultural migrants. Mm-hmm. They wanted. The kind of dynamic arts, yeah, innovation, energy of San Francisco. Back to the tricolor, yeah. and and I just like to say this sometimes. Um, the Ireland podcast, I called it initially. You're champion for the island, and then my sister in law said, "You know that sounds like a you're trying to unify Ireland." And yeah. I said, "Well, I kind of am, but I meant from a cultural point of view, from a celebration." And then so I it it changed then into your celebration of the island. So I'm taking out the politics, hopefully, because you never do it fully out of Northern Ireland. Yeah. And then the other thing is the colouring of the branding. I don't have green, white and orange in the branding. And that was a very conscious thing because yeah, I didn't yeah. want to ostracise our Protestant neighbours up north, uh, our British neighbours up north, I should say. And also what else am I thinking? I'm thinking about what you said about economic migration. I'm thinking about Rory Stewart. You know him? Yeah. He's fantastic. I love listening to him. Him and uh, Alistair Campbell, they have this podcast called yeah. The Rest is Politics. And I, I think it's one of the most important podcasts on the planet. Mm-hmm. Two opposing views politically, discussing matters at hand. And um, Rory came up with this fantastic idea, which was we're going to be faced with this um, huge amount of immigration because of... Um, the, the as you say the economic situation and because of the more so and because they're bombing countries <laughs> yeah yeah and the cl- the climate situation and his idea was why don't we give why don't we divvy it all up so we give 0.2 to this country 0.4 to this country but the problem with this that he never rec- or he never mentioned anything about that that implies that Russia for example would have to play ball or any country would have to play ball, and yeah. not all of them would want to do that. Well, yes, but it's a great idea. Yeah, well, well, it's it's certainly something that should be discussed, which is sounds like what they were attempting. I just want to revisit just one thing briefly. What you're talking about about our Protestant neighbours and so on. Um, I was listening to your podcast with Liam O'Manley as well, and this question of identity, and, and it's fascinating that increasingly people are not identifying as Catholic or Protestant and, and particularly in the North then there's a third identity has emerged as Northern Irish as distinct from Irish or British uh-huh. and you know there's all these nuances within it and it, it's not always as kind of binary or black and white green or orange and I, I kind of welcome that as well that you know you're not forced into a corner and I think identity and Firstly, nations are relatively modern concepts anyway, 
so are counties and all these multiple identities. But, um, you know, it's interesting to think about international development, which it sounds like what, what the lads were talking about their podcast. Like a lot of the reason a lot of countries are poor is because of colonization, frankly, and who colonized them, generally speaking, most of Europe or, you know, and we in Ireland like to say, well, we didn't do it. You know, we were the ones who were oppressed and so on. But the bottom line is we we are and have benefited massively from the Western colonial systems, which are now in many ways in place in the way that monoculture crops or the exports of the mass natural resources, particularly in Africa, but Asia, everywhere else. So, you know, I'm not saying necessarily like we have to, there has to be some kind of understanding. And I, I suppose international and global development post-World War II was at some point a priority in the context of having United Nations and a, and a way for countries to kind of come around the table together. It's like you could say it's an idealistic process and you could say the same about the EU. But if we don't have that level of idealism to get people around the table into a dialogue and a sharing, then what have we? We have a retreat into uh, national nationalism, boundaries, borders, division, and it's 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 not cooperation. And at this point in time for ecology and humanity, we need drastically and urgently to revisit this concept of interconnected being, interbeing, um, a kind of a new global understanding. But yeah, how do we do that with Russia? But you know, it's I, Russia aren't uniquely to blame in this regard. Like if you look at um, the geopolitical scenarios, yeah. we like to say, well, Uncle Sam is kind of clean and who's better, China? If you look at what's going on in Gaza at the moment, who's funding that and who's allowing it? Um, you know, the West isn't, you know, the greatest moral force ever either. So, you know, it's complicated. Um, Did you know that in Northern Ireland and Belfast... In West Belfast, whenever, in the 80s, I can remember this, they used to fly the Palestinian flag. And then in East Belfast, they, they, flying, nah, they still do. They still do, yeah, yeah they, they still do. do. Yeah. But it's not hilarious that they, that one group up there identifies as one and the other and the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's only, that's only certain areas. It's not obviously everybody. But it's interesting that you were saying there about, do I want to go into this area? Uh, about identity again. Uh, the reason why I'm saying it... Well, I, d- I don't have much m- more to say beyond what... Liam no, no, because I, I, I have a big paragraph in my head and I don't know if I w- want to say it. Well, then you should say it because it's... I should say it. Because <laughs> you're just teasing people. <laughs> right. Ah, uh, maybe not. Take it. Take a moment and decide. Yeah, no, I think I'll pause. I'll okay. not say it. That's to be... That's, that's, uh, that's to come down the line. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it. I what the hell? Right. Whenever I was in China, right? Whenever, well, first of all, I was living in London. And I, I, whenever I was living in London, I was always this Irish man. Always. And I'd get into arguments with people, you know. I was drinking back then, so I'd get into bigger arguments with people sometimes. I'm Irish! All that stuff. I went to China, and I was there for, for about a year or maybe two years. And I had to get my visa renewed, or actually I had to get my work visa established. And the lady was on the computer, and I was trying to explain to her, I'm from Northern Ireland, but I'm Irish. I have an Irish passport. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, but, you know, you, you know you're, you're from UK. I said, no, I'm actually from Ireland. 
Mm-hmm. I was trying to explain yeah, to her. Yeah, yeah. And she was trying computer to... Computer says no. Computer says no. Yeah. And I had, to, I, had to, I had to admit to that woman that I was British. And but here comes the rest of the paragraph. I started identifying as a British man and an Irish man when I was in China. And then I was thinking, I was thinking, imagine, imagine if everybody in Northern Ireland did what, I, what I'm doing now. And so I started leaning into it more. I'm an Irish man and I'm a British man. And now I've come back to Ireland. And here I am. I'm an Irish man and I'm a British man. And I am proud of it. I embrace it. And I say to everybody up north, do the same. Because if you do the same, maybe you can actually vote in politics and policies rather than parties and what colour they are. You know what I mean? You've got alliance in the middle and you've got two parties on either side of them. Alliance is your only choice, you know? Imagine, and this is something my father said to me recently, he was in the civil rights movement, he was in Bloody Sunday. He says, SDLP should join up with UUP. I was thinking, that's a brilliant idea. Imagine that happened. Imagine if Ulster Unionist Party and SDLP became the one party. Then you'd have two political parties in the middle. I'm going to hear people, you know, oh, but UUP are in the middle. And I'll say, yeah, but they're still Ulster Unionist Party and SDLP are a nationalist party. So there, I've said it. Mm, it's, a, it's a fascinating... Um I mean, it's going to provoke all sorts of reactions of people and, and that's their own business. And, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> but I'm a very proud Irishman. It's, you know, it's, it's Bradlam and Gaelic. Like, it's... It's Bradlam and Kjol and Shaw Foster. So, so like, th- this actually is goes to what I was going to say there is... There's different notions of political and national identity. Like you can identify with a state, you know, because it was a computer that decided, you know, you fitted that category of statehood. Yeah. Um, but but the borders were always sort of designed by other people or enforced anyway. So like, and going back to the topic of the podcast title, like we this is the island of Ireland. It oh. always was. There's nobody can ever change that. Yeah. Um, and borders were created and they will possibly change again in the future. And we're always changing. And I think there are they are important for many people. Uh, but what's more important in many ways are, you know, this going back to my public health thing hospital services education service this is what needs to be attended to and ecology and peace safety sanity um and within all of that like you can argue that your national identity is going to resolve all that but it's not you know it's it, it's part of who we are but it's it, it's it, we're more than all of those things so identity is a very kind of fraught topic and it gets people very emotive doesn't it and, and yeah. tribal and I suppose I grew up on the border as well. And you grew up on no man's land. Well, yeah, like in one sense, I I, I often feel more connected to people north of the border. Because you're from County Cavan, which yeah. is an Irish Ulster, but not in British Ulster. Yeah, well, see, I, I, I struggle with the term British Ulster because of how I grew up and yeah. 
you know, so I, I struggle with that, but I'm not, I don't feel the need to beat you over the head or anything. You know? <laughs> Do you know, whenever, whenever I first met your brother, it was an open mic night in, in China. And this woman, I, you know, she's running the, the night. And then uh, she says, where are you from? I says, Ireland. She goes, oh, there's another guy from Ireland here. I says, okay, introduce us. Oh, here. What did you say? <laughs> she, she brought me over and says, uh, this guy's from Ireland. I says, what's your name? Sean Old, what's your name? I told him my name. And then, uh, where are you from? Cavan. Where are you from? Derry. Can you play bass? Aye. Just some blues. Aye, no problem. What about you? What do you play? Aye, guitar. You don't want to join a couple of... Aye, aye. And she, we're just chatting away. Like, that was the entire conversation. And at this point, the lady jumps in, the Chinese lady, and said, do you two know each other? I said, no. And Sean Oak says, but we're from the same province. And I said to her, but two different countries. Well, that goes back to my point about borders. Yeah. And apparently it was Balfour, British diplomat, who designed the border in the north, who's the same, as far as I understand, I might be wrong, designed the border of where Israel and Palestine connects. Ooh. So history is still very much with us and being played out in real time. I interrupted you. You're talking about Kevin. Uh, yeah, no, that was more to do with, you know, I can identify with people from the north culturally sometimes more than people from the south and <laughs> depends I, how much they're embarrassing you well yeah like i don't know like i have a counselor myself like a personal therapist and uh and he's from the north and one of the reasons i selected him was he's from the north because i feel like often nordy people as i call them are a bit more blunt and direct and Never. i appreciate that you know Never. Never. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you know, whatever you're saying there about he's from the north, I'm straight away thinking, is he a Catholic or a Protestant? I don't know what he, actually. You can tell. Is um, his eyes too close together? Okay. <laughs> to be honest with you, I, I, I'm, I'm actually used to be very good at doing the whole 60 second test. You know, yeah. you could just know by name, school, this, that, and the other. Um, I've come, I've almost tried to deprogram myself from knowing. Yeah. Because it's so limiting in terms of getting to know a human being. Yeah. Um, but I, as it happens, I'm pretty sure he's Protestant. You know. But I couldn't care less. Yeah, I couldn't care less either, you know. Uh, the old cliche, some of my best friends are Protestants. And, um, and he might be culturally Protestant and he might have nothing to do with religion, which yeah. makes him not Protestant. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then you have the other way about as well. Some of my friends are Protestant backgrounds, but have are, are identified with the Irish. Well, I, I think like at some level we have to stop talking about this because not right now, but in general, because yeah. you know people mirror back when I travel about you know you people in Ireland and Catholic and Protestant. Mm. It's like it's nothing to do with those religions. It's nothing to do with it. But you know, I I left Northern Ireland in '96. I, I went to England and then I went on to China thereafter. So. I grew up in the Troubles. You know, I was born in the Troubles. I left during the Troubles before the uh, Good Friday Agreement was signed and all the rest. And then what happened was, anytime I grew up, it, you needed to know who you were talking to. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I was saying to people in China that I could meet somebody from Australia or South Africa or whatever or, or Bangladesh 
as I did. And then you're straight away, you know, what's your name? And, you know, do you, do you play music is the next question, usually. And then, uh, but if I met somebody from Northern Ireland, I'm straight away thinking, not because I, I want to know, but because I'm programmed that way. And as you say, which is very interesting, you fight against that program and I have been trying, but Jesus, this is hard. Ah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I'll never not have it to some extent, but there's a lot of things we're programmed with. Yeah. Um, and some of them are useful and some of them are not. But also yeah. it was useful. It served a purpose for people in a in a fractured, con- mm. in a conflict. You need to know your parameters. Exactly. Or, you know, sometimes it could, it could, could mean yeah. while well, you're in for a kick or not. <laughs> back in the day, back in the day. But um. I'm so glad that those days are far behind us, yeah, you know. Good riddance. What's our time check? I got five minutes or so. What do you want to talk about? We, we, no, we, we I just, don't know. It's your podcast. I, I know. <laughs> Tell me about Mike, Michael D. You met him. How many times have you met Michael D? Mm, dozens. Dozens? Mm. Is Michael D. Higgins the president of Ireland? Mm. Tell me the first time you met him and how did that come about? I first met him on a train, actually. Uh, from Dublin to Galway, uh, I was um, launching a suicide prevention campaign that I was working on, and um, he was a TD, and I, they used to call it doorstep, and or they still do doorstepping him, but I just cornered him, you know. Well, it, it wasn't very you hard. You trolled him. It wasn't very hard to corner him. He was stuck on a train. <laughs> and I just, you know, got him to support the campaign and give him information, and he was very accessible. And then the next time I met him... Um, I actually didn't meet him. I um, So he's only a TD at that stage? Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a conversation with him years and years later when I was involved in a big summit and we ended up getting the Dalai Lama to speak at it. And um, That's right, yeah. He, did he phone me or I, I don't know. We ended up on the phone and we had a huge conversation about Tibet because he had been to Tibet. And he's a whole history of human rights engagement around the world. And... Um, yeah, we were on the phone for an hour and then the conversation morphed into one about poetry and philosophy and he was talking about John O'Donoghue and and then he, the event was called Possibilities and he said he had a poem, if I remember correctly, he said he had a poem called Possibilities and he sent it to, and we published it as part of a publication we made. Um, and then I was speaking at an event years later and he came up to me at the end of that and then he got elected as president and then he phoned me and asked me to join the Council of State, which is the president's advisory body. I remember this. This is yeah. weird because Sean Oak was telling me about yeah, it. Yeah, so the, this is um, in 2011. This is over. This is over. Jesus, this is over 12 years ago now. God. He, um, so I served seven years on that and would have been in and out of the RS and different events. And, uh-huh. and s- s- since then, I've been in a, a number of times as well. Uh-huh. Does he come to you for advice? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do I feel used and abused sometimes? By who? By <laughs> bringing in the Dalai Lama? Oh, God, yeah. No, no, like no. Um, well, you know, I, my job was to be an advisor on the Council of State, but yeah. I mean, you're one of twenty. Um, you point seven advisors, and there's another thirteen or so um, permanent fixtures that are the Taoiseach and the Tanish and the Attorney General and ex. Prime Ministers and whatnot. Class. Yeah. Tell me about the Dalai Lama. Um, well, I met him for all of like four seconds. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, we were involved in bringing him over. Uh, with because a, he actually a great dairy man. Richard Moore was the, the kind of linchpin in, in orchestrating that, who's the Dalai Lama calls his hero. 
uh, Richard was famously blinded by a rubber bullet of a British soldier and went on to meet and um, sort of find peace with the soldier. And there's a documentary, you find it on YouTube, called The Dalai Lama's Hero, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as it is, I've met a lot of sort of well-known and famous people and you're involved in this and that and the campaigns and events. And sometimes you have a long chat to them. Sometimes it's 30 seconds. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. Like I, I um, some of the more interesting chats I have are, most of them are people that are not famous. <laughs> like I don't get too involved in that kind of crack, you know? Yeah. Well, um, what conversation are you thinking of? Whenever you say that, um, one this morning I had for an hour with a guy in a cafe. Actually, I'll give him a plug. Actually, his name's Jeff Ward, and he runs um, the tree bark shop in my Cullen County Galway. And they stocked my book. And I went in to have a coffee and got chatting to him, and spent an hour philosophizing and chatting and. Um, took a photo and I said I'd promote it and encourage everyone to shop local and all that crack but it's an amazing shop of like full of Irish created arts and crafts and great coffee and all that and I'd never really chatted to Jeff properly before and you know um yeah just you know unexpected and Mm -hmm. Um, but like people get obsessed with famous people and status and all that kind of stuff. And of course, like you want to meet Bob Dylan and blah, blah, blah. But Not really. Well, I don't actually. Yeah, as it happens. But um, no, exactly. Because <laughs> uh, he, well, he does seem a bit loomy like, you know, but yeah. he has to be a fascinating character. But does that Louis, mean... Louis, I would have liked to have met him. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe Bob Marley or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, like... As I find in my counselling work, actually, everybody is fascinating. Yes. If you take the time. Yes. I agree with you. The thing about famous people, sometimes, not always, is that they've created an identity and an image around themselves and they become quite jaded by public interactions and interviews and all that. And so there's a shield. And so you have to, how do you get behind the shield? Yeah. Some people, and, and it must be very hard to be that public person all the time. Politicians are the same. So I suppose one of the things about Michael D that struck me was one of the, the second time I met him, he came up and gave me a big hug. I thought this was very interesting because politicians often get quite mm. hard and cold mm. because they're so worn down by, and people are roaring at them all the time and whatnot, giving out. Um, so to keep your humanity and your curiosity alive as a well-known figure is, is quite difficult, I would say. But it might be, it might explain some of the reasons that some famous people become a bit more, you know, guarded, let's say. I was, I was at uh, Rahoon Cemetery. There was an unveiling of a plaque of uh, Sonny, Michael Sonny Bodkin, uh, who was Nora Barnacle's ex-boyfriend before James Joyce. Sabina Higgins comes up to me and says, big smile, who are you? And I, I thought, this is class. Mm. This woman has a curiosity, yeah. an openness yeah. to find out who I am. Yeah. That's it in a nutshell. And they're, they're still very much like that as a family. Um, and Sabina is, you know, er, every much his equal as a partner in that life they've had together um, over many decades now, public servants. And I, and I stress that as public servants. It's like people are going, oh, they make money and this, that and the other, and they're all out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And some people genuinely are in their public service to serve the public. And they happen to get elected and they happen to have big titles. 
But that's an example there. She saw you as a human being beyond any class status and just going, how's it going? <laughs> I see myself as a public servant. I see this podcast as a vehicle for positivity in the yeah, world. Yeah. There's enough bad stuff happening yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And I want to lighten people's days, you know, and if I can provide some insight along the way, it's great. Well, more power to you, man. Thank you. Um, fair play. Well, that's that's all. Like, you've got two choices, you know. You're kind of into, like, you know, love and, and peace or you're into the old hating and fear and... yeah. You know, they do say, like, you have a choice between... Everything comes down to a choice of, like, love or fear, in a sense. And and my compassionate side does see that a lot of the people doing the hating at the moment, uh, it's out of fear. And 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 they might be scared or they want change and they're not being listened to. And, um, you know, we, we need... That's going... Let's get it... Let's get back around the table, which is what happen in the north where things collapse and you people can't go around the table and they have to go at each other in a violent way mm. uh, which is why it's no small thing to get different sides around the table and and to pursue peace and it takes a lot of courage and hard work uh, and often it's the quiet leaders behind the scenes particularly often women uh, that traditionally haven't always got the glory when it comes to it um, a friend of mine Melanie Lynch runs a organization called Her Story and they did a project called Peace Heroines all about the women peace leaders of the north because when peace leaders are celebrated they're always men in suits and often it was the quiet ones operating behind the scenes that were making things happen so um. I think whenever you're saying there about fear and love first of all I'm thinking about your podcast Love and Courage but but the fear I think I think it's, a, it's just a different type of love arguably they, you know, the people that you're saying are the fear mongers, they have a different love, I think. And I don't, I had a conversation with somebody recently about Trump. And for the first time, I could see why people see the goodness in Trump, that he's a saviour. I'm not saying I agree with what they were saying. I certainly don't. But the thing is, I could see it for the first time. And, you, you know, we cannot fault whatever 70 million, you know, people in america yeah so that's a conversation for another time so we'll we'll pause it there i didn't even get to talk about alice cooper's uh ex-girlfriend who is your wife Susie quattro oh yeah <laughs> you might want to clarify that, that <laughs> they're not she's well, not alice thing? cooper's ex-girlfriend but um, well, they didn't go out to each other no <laughs> i thought they were an item <laughs> Uh, so my wife's name is Susan Quirk. And, oh, Quirk! Yeah, and and has has gone under the name Susie Q before. <laughs> I thought Susie Quattro was the Susie Q. Uh, yeah, there there have been multiple Susie Qs in the world, and, and obviously Susie Quattro being the most famous. And uh, Susan has released music in the past under Susie Q, but is now back under Susan Quirk. And uh, yeah, she she's amazing. She's a meditation teacher, and an advisor to all sorts of athletes and others around mindset and consciousness and optimizing your talents in the world. And she also writes and releases music as well. Right. But not Susie Quattro. Not Susie I was all looking forward to meeting her in her leather pants. No. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> American pants, not, not Irish pants, you know, not underpants. 
but yeah well i'll leave you with that one <laughs> <laughs> okay rory we'll, we'll send links to those you know click on the links you'll be able to see those those people and um yeah gorra beal and my yogurt gorra marcos slan slan This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production.